I think, and um, needed a break in any case, so we're back with a new, well, a new series, hopefully, which I'm calling the Silmarillion Sessions. <laughs> hopefully that's not too corny for people, but I think it will, you know, get across um, what we're doing and the, the point of these podcasts, point of this series. So we're going to be having a look, as the title suggests, um, at the Silmarillion itself, the book that was published in 1977. And we're going to be reading through that um, in a series of podcasts, sort of a chapter at a time, although some um, some podcasts we will read several chapters, especially towards the beginning of the book where the chapters are usually quite um, quite short. And once we get to the sort of the great tales, so-called, Uh, We'll probably spend a few podcasts on each one because they deserve attention. And um, this is the first of of, of those, of of our podcasts on the Silmarillion. So today we'll be looking at the letter at the start of the book, uh, well, start of the second edition anyway, which was written by Tolkien to Milton Waldman, an erstwhile publisher, of the book, who actually didn't publish the book, so we'll talk about that. Um, and then we will be looking at the Ainulind delay, the creation story today, and we'll be thinking about the implications of that. So I think this should be fun. Obviously, a few other podcasts have Silmarillion, you know, read-throughs as well, so we just wanted to add to that. But we'll be bringing our own perspective, of course, to that and hopefully that'll be of interest to people and it's lovely to be able to read through the Silmarillion again. Um, I've been reading through a few of the early chapters and it's, um, it's a great, it's a great way to get into, you know, perhaps the theology of, of Tolkien's vision, uh, which we'll be talking about. So, uh, broadly construed. <laughs> so I guess before we begin, Schreeder, have you actually read this before or I'm wish reader, by the way, I should have said that to start with, but I, I have you read this before or is this the first time um, that you're reading, uh, reading through it? I, I read this through once before <laughs> when I was probably in sometime in middle school. Okay. Yeah. Uh, some, sometime around then. I don't remember. Um, maybe, mm. maybe early high school. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, 15 years ago or so, 15, 16 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and since, since then, I, I've maybe read a, a story, you know, here or there, like uh, just sort of snippets of it. Um, and I, I remember at the start of this this project, I, I read the letter once. I don't remember why. Um, maybe we had <laughs> talked about it some other time, but I, I, for some reason, I, I think just we read did, it. And yeah. I, yeah. And then I read it again, just, um, you know, for this time through. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to actually reading it sort of in adulthood and... <laughs> um, it'll be good to read it with with you because um, I'm sure you you'll bring a, a host of insight to it that was way over my kid head. 
Oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> that is yet to be determined, <laughs> I guess. But yes, hopefully, hopefully this will be interesting, and I'm sure we'll we'll both bring insight to it. And what about so, you? Is are you are you steeped in this stuff, or have you read it just a few times? What's there? <laughs> um, look, I've probably read it more than um, you know, more than is advisable. <laughs> no, I mean I have read it a few times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, simply because, of course, you know it's part of this universe or part of this literary project if you want that i'm obviously quite enamored with so yes I've, I've read it a few times having said that each read through is you know sort of brings in something new to it um so i'm very pleased to be able to just read through it again always you know happy to find an excuse <laughs> so i guess we need to start with some background so of course the Silmarillion uh, well, I don't know if you know this, but the Silmarillion has a bit of a reputation for um, for density, I guess, <laughs> for being quite a difficult read. And I think um, approaching this as an adult, as you said, is, is probably the best way to do it. Uh, whilst The Hobbit, of course, is, is, is a children's book, at least in some sense, it can be read by adults, but it's certainly um, approachable by children. And of course, the Lord of the Rings is something that you can pick up, I guess, as a, I guess, an adolescent maybe, but rewards rereading as an adult as well. I think Silmarillion really requires some maturity to approach um, properly. You mentioned that you read it in middle school. Um, you know, and I think in my experience anyway, it can often be difficult for people of that age, or indeed any age, if you go onto Reddit and have a look at. A lot of discussions around the Silmarillion there. It's like, um, you know, I'm finding this difficult. How do I get through this? And everyone chimes in with advice, you know, make, make a list of names, have a map, um, etc. So we may have to do that. I don't know. We'll see how we go with all the elves yeah. named F, named uh, yeah. know, with, with a name beginning with F. Um, start making spreadsheets. Yes, um, making, making spreadsheets. Yeah. Um, in, you know, no, I I agree with that. Just real quick, mm, I think it's mm. a it's it's a trap that's kind of sad because <laughs> you know you can be a kid and sort of read the lord of the rings or the hobbit depending on which one you get to first and, and you mm. really like it and then you think oh i want more and then you read again like the hobbit like i think i read the lord of the rings first and then mm. i read the mm. hobbit and i was like oh i you know i want more of this so then i you know i sort of mm. you know, looked around and was like what's the what's some more of this and i saw the mm. silmarillion and i picked it up and <laughs> I, I do remember that i made it through the book but i Honestly, I think I just hit a brick wall of comprehension. There were just large yep. chunks that I was like, I'm just going to, the words are going to go through me, but mm. nothing, is, mm. nothing is happening upstairs. So, mm. Yeah. No, that's yeah fair. I, I think that's a trap that I'm sure a lot of kids have fallen into. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my mind, I think if you're a sophisticated reader, that is, if you read widely, I don't think the Silmarillion should present too much of a problem. So you are definitely that. So I think you'll be fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope. <laughs> you know, and I think that the the book does demand you know attention um, and concentration, but uh, so do many other difficult books. So you know, I'm, I'm sure that's um, not going to be an, an issue. But um, in its style and substance, it is, of course, more like um, a 
in some parts a chronicle maybe, but in other parts, um, you know, perhaps a, a saga or something. Um, for reasons we'll talk about it, obviously, apes or it, it is inspired by various genres of medieval literature and even classical literature as well, perhaps. Um, so it doesn't read like a novel. It's not a novel. So it does present the reader with a different set of conventions that you know, one doesn't find in the novel. And I think people, especially critics, have struggled, struggled perhaps to understand what the point of such a project would be. You know, why, why write a work that, um, is a kind of fake epitome of fake history, um, for a fake past? Of course, I use the word fake, um, sort of ironically there, um, because of course, the fantasy genre, as we now know, is a huge business. And so people quite enjoy reading about so-called fake histories. But, um, you know, I still think that the Silmarillion is fairly unique in fantasy literature. If we want to group it, you know, as is conventional with that, um, usually fantasy literature today is, is, uh, composed of novels, of course, as, as you might find in any other genre. Uh, it's just, that those novels just happen to be set in a sort of fantastical world. But Cimmerlin is, is something else, and I think part of what makes it interesting makes it interesting is also the um well it, its structure, its form as we've talked about, or as I've mentioned. So that'll be something which we'll talk about um as well. I'll also just say real quick mm-hmm. that the, the accusation that it's a sort of made-up history for, or like a made-up mythology for a made-up history is is kind of weak because that's kind of what all mythology is, right? It's <laughs> there, well, there's no there's no mythos that kind of mm, deals with mm, the quote unquote real world in a in a, mm, in, a mm, in an accurate way, right? Mm, it's I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of feel that this is as legitimate as any other kind of myth any other kind of creation mm. myth, you know, it just happens to be one that was created more in modern times, but it's not mm-hmm. like the Hindu creation myth has any better grasp on reality than this one. <laughs> it's just that maybe at the time that the Hindu reality, uh, that the Hindu um, creation myth mm-hmm. came to being, that was the best explanation that they had. So they thought it was real. Whereas token is very aware that mm-hmm. it's not in some ways that may, may, maybe it has a better grasp on reality than, <laughs> than our time honored myths. So, mm-hmm. well, has going forward. there's so much there. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. I mean, of course, the, the difference is that this is a creation of a single individual, um, you know, which is itself mm-hmm. quite extraordinary, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and many people True. commented on that, that, that he was sort of able to generate a facsimile of sort of cultural myth sort of in his own um mind and then and then of course develop it over his lifetime but um yeah i mean that that's certainly that's certainly true and of course that gets to the point of what myth is and what's it what it's meant to communicate how literally should should we should take it and questions like that um even you know even myths in in the past or as they were thought of in the past but um i think it raises some interesting questions yeah, yeah. So that's really the idea of this podcast. And hopefully this will be accessible to people who haven't even read the Silmarillion. Although I should say that we'll always be talking 
and discussing it as though you've already read it or read the, the relevant chapters. So there will, you know, always be spoilers if you want to put it that way. Um, it'll just be assumed that you, you've read the relevant chapters. But um, if 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 any of our listeners haven't read it yet and want to follow along, of course, that's possible as well. And I'll post, you know, usually on my on the well on the Twitter account for this podcast, the chapters that we're looking at for those who may be interested. So, yeah, it's designed hopefully for people who are just interested in the text and want to sort of dive into it in a bit more depth. So with that, I guess um, we can we can sort of begin. And actually, I did want to very briefly, um, more preliminary material, sorry, <laughs> briefly yeah. go over the textual history just because um, um, I think that's important um, for context, and we will come back to that as we discuss um, the book uh, going forward. So, of course, the Silmarillion was published in 1977 in the first edition and 1999 in the second edition, and it was compiled by Christopher Tolkien, mostly out of the edition or the the um, the edition of the of the text that was written in the 1950s by Tolkien, about 1951. So around the same time that he was writing The Lord of the Rings. However, that was unfinished, of course, like most things Tolkien wrote. So Christopher Tolkien had to supplement it with material from various other uh, writings that Tolkien had completed, particularly materials of, you know, what some scholars have called the sort of annal tradition or analytic tradition in Tolkien's writing. That is more of a sort of chronology tradition. Um, and he wrote several of these sort of chronologies sort of which go year by year, as, as you would imagine. And a lot of these are quite um, uh, quite complex, though they, they really sort of tell narrative stories. So you can sort of use that material to, to really supplement um, the, the unfinished sort of work, and that's more or less what Christopher did in, um, in composing the text in composing the Silmarillion in its published form. So the Silmarillion in its published form is not a product of Tolkien himself, in a sense. Uh, in, I say in its published form. It is a product of his son's um, editorial work. Now, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think this Silmarillion is more or less the Silmarillion that we would have gotten had Tolkien completed it around the time of The Lord of the Rings. It is not the Silmarillion that we would have got had Tolkien completed it 20 years later, because as we've seen in the recent volume, The Nature of Middle-earth, he was reconsidering a whole lot of things, a whole lot of sort of features in the legendarium, and I have a lot to say about that. And um, Hopefully soon I'll be doing a sort of joint review of that volume with um, uh, with Daniel Stride, who I've interviewed before, who, who indeed was my first interviewee, and Daniel, um, as you might remember, is a great blogger on Tolkien at his blog Foolish Fellow, uh, which I've got linked uh, in the show notes for that first interview, so you can have a look at that if you want. But hopefully we'll be um, at some point soon doing a joint sort of review of that and discussing the book. Uh, the reason it's taking so long is because the book, I have the book, I ordered it from Britain, but um, it has apparently taken quite some time to 
get to the Antipodes. He's in New Zealand, so he's across the pond, as we say. But um, I think it's taken quite a while to get there. So um, whilst I have it, I don't know if he does. But, yes, we will get to that at some stage soon. But um, in any case, so I think I think this is a fairly good representation of where the Silmarillion stands in the 1950s um, and in relation to the Lord of the Rings, I think this is the Silmarillion that sort of makes most sense to have. So um, a lot of scholars don't agree with that, um, but certain scholars like Gogai Naj, who I've also interviewed before, um, which was a very interesting interview, sort of agrees with that opinion. So if you want to hear about that, you can go back and listen to that interview. Uh, but, you know, he's of the opinion as well that this is sort of, this this does represent Tolkien's, um, you know, sort of writing his, the development of the, the work at the time of The Lord of the Rings. So it's sort of the closest that we would get to something that coheres um, with The Lord of the Rings. So as I mentioned, Tolkien then went on in the 1960s to change, or at least to think about changing a whole lot of things, but of course never finished that later Silmarillion. Um, and we might talk about that later as well, but for the most part we'd be considering this text. So that is is, is sort of uh, just some background. And of course today, as I mentioned, we'll be looking at the Ainulindale, which is the the creation story um, of in the, in the Silmarillion, which is, I think it's important to note a separate work to the Quenta Silmarillion or the tale of the Silmarils themselves, pardon me. And it was sort of conceived of as a separate work from the beginning. And it, the first, if you like, version of it was written um, back in the 1920s, I think early 1920s or perhaps a little earlier than that. But again, the edition or the the version of the text that Christopher Tolkien relied on the most to generate the published text is that from 1951, which, to, uh, which uh, Christopher Tolkien sort of details in the book Morgoth's Ring, which is the um, one of the volumes of the History of Middle-earth series, where most of those original drafts of the 1950s Silmarillion are actually displayed. Um, and there are several features of that text that are a little bit different um, in the published text. Most notably, the 1951 text still has a sort of um, a prelude from Tolkien explaining the sort of metatextual character of the story. That is that um, it's a work of sort of elvish um, law masters, to use the, the jargon, as uh, this was something that Christopher excised from the original, from the published version, um, mainly because it's pretty clear that during the later 1950s and 60s, Tolkien abandoned the idea of using um, a sort of Anglo-Saxon mariner as a way of tra- as, as a sort of mechanism for translating these texts. So originally, it was sort of the idea that elves wrote this down, the, these sort of law masters, and then they communicated this story to a sort of Anglo-Saxon mariner, and then that's how it's sort of come down to us. Now, later, Tolkien sort of ditched that, and, and really in the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, it's where he comes up with the idea of um, 
the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion as a kind of translation of Elvish material by Bilbo himself, and that somehow that that's how it comes down to us. So it gets rid of this Anglo-Saxon idea, really, which had actually been around in some form since um, the 19-teens when Tolkien started writing, um, and, and it's really finally there that that whole idea is sort of ditched in favour of a sort of of Bilbo as the translator, Bilbo the Hobbit, of course, of this material. So I think we can imagine the Silmarillion then as a, a translation of Elvish texts, <laughs> perhaps originally by Bilbo, but then they're sort of somehow in in the sort of fictional narrative or meta meta narrative, they've sort of come, somehow come down to Tolkien, the the the, the philologist, and he's translated Bilbo's translation into English. So, so that's how we might think about that. Um, if we want to take the, the Lord of the Rings meta fictional frame as, as sort of canon, although I don't, don't like that word in this context, but I think that's the best way to think about it anyway. Um, I don't know if, if everyone will agree with that, if all scholars would agree with that, but, um, that's certainly how I think about it. And even in that frame, we can still imagine that the work was originally, of course, conceived and written by certain Elvish scribes, if you like. Um, but we just we just get rid of the the whole connection to, to Anglo-Saxon England, which I've always thought is a bit of a, a bit of a clunky means of doing this. So that's a little bit of the background for the Silmarillion and the Ainulindale, which of course we're going to focus on now. But before we do that again. <laughs> Um, I feel like there's a lot of preambles here, but we're really going to start with, um, as I mentioned at the, at the, at the beginning, we're going to start with the letter to Wilton Mold, Milton Waldman, Wilton Moldman. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and we're just going to consider a few things. We won't spend too much time on that, but I think it's worth considering a few features there. And of course, that letter is printed as a kind of introduction in the second edition. To the, of the Silmarillion, which honestly, if you go and buy it in a store now, um, is, is the edition that you will get. So most listeners, I imagine, will have that in their edition. And we are reading the, uh, the Mariner slash Shooting Mifflin edition. That's, that's the one, um, that we're both looking at. Although, of course, it's published by HarperCollins as well. Although, if it's published by HarperCollins, you may have different page numbers to the page numbers that we, uh, refer to which we may do here and there. But I think you'll be able to find the relevant areas at any rate. So I've talked for long enough, really, I guess. Um, so, Shrita, just by way of introducing this letter um, or introducing our discussion of, the, of this letter, what, what were your general thoughts about it? What did you think was interesting about this? Well, I thought it was it was interesting because... It seemed to it seemed to me that he was repudiating some of the cliches that people have about mm-hmm. Tolkien pretty much right off the bat, and um, of course that opens up the question of how how sincere or how how at his word we should take him <laughs> when he when he does that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure if you if you know what I'm talking about, but. One, one example that I have underlined here is um, 
is uh he he says that he he dislikes allegory. Oh yeah, and yeah. He, he goes on to to talk about that. Um, he says that uh, I, I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory. Yet any attempt to explain the the, the purport of my of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more life a story has, the more readily will it be susceptible to of of allegorical interpretations. Mm-hmm. Well, the better a deliberate allegory is made, the more nearly will it be acceptable just as a story. So. Um, that seems to me, I mean, he, he's, he's, it's, it's kind of a semantic splitting of the hairs, but it does seem to me that my understanding of the way that a lot of um, people approach Tokyo is, is almost as one giant allegory. And it seems <laughs> here that his intention was to make much more of a, a kind of detailed story or not just a, not a story in the sense that it's a narrative, but make a sort of detailed um, just a, a detailed structure, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, of, of prose that that's much more built from the bottom up rather than the top down. I, I guess that's maybe the best way I can um, picture it. It's I always mm-hmm. had the the impression that Token was a very top down composer um, <laughs> of his prose, but if we were to take him at his word, it seems like he was he was maybe working more bottom up than we know. But I don't mm-hmm. know if we can take him at his word. What do you what do you think about that? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I think you're right. I mean, when you say bottom up, what what do you sort of mean by that exactly? Kind so, of kind of just laying down mm. laying down interesting bricks and and kind of seeing the structures built as they as they sort of appear rather than mm. um, coming top down with this with this enormous structure all planned out and he's just mm. sort of filling in the details, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, he says somewhere here that, um, you know, he feels like he's sort of discovering something that's already there, not not so much inventing. Mm. Um, I didn't highlight that, but I know it's here somewhere. <laughs> um, which is, you know, an interesting way to think about creativity in the sort of creative process. I'm sure a lot of people who either write stories or uh, even paint or, you know, engage in some sort of artistic endeavor um, can relate to that idea. Yeah. It makes me think of, of somewhere in, in an interview, um, Nabokov is being bombarded by all these <laughs> questions about, um, mm. About you know what does this story mean and what did you mean to say when you wrote this and and he he always used to just say that it means nothing more than the story itself and when he was writing it all he was doing he wasn't thinking of these grand themes he was just sort of collecting twigs and pebbles for the, for a nest whose shape <laughs> he uh, he he had no idea of when he was collecting them you know and the sort of the novel appears as uh you know <laughs> as you write it. So, but that, that's, that's a very artistic conception of making something that I wouldn't have necessarily ascribed to Tolkien. I, I would have thought that he had more of a plan, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Well, of course, when he's writing, say, the 1951 Silmarillion, that, although, you know, that particular period of writing, um, he, of course, already has a general story because he's, he has before him the, 1937 Silmarillion <laughs> and then the the Lost Tales versions of the stories which of course are the first the first ones so the i guess the the structure of the story doesn't really change particularly between the 1920s and 50s 
But of course, certain details are switched around um, and certain ideas are elaborated on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, he, he sort of, by the time we, we get to the material that's sort of compiled in this particular volume, he certainly has the story and he's already been working on it for quite some time. Um, so he's not, yeah, he's not winging it. Yeah, he's not winging it by this, by this point. Yeah. Um, but of course, as, as, you know, as I've said, um, each new sort of iteration of the story introduces new elements or, you know, changes something or, I mean, I mean, what, we're not, we're not sort of going to necessarily be doing a sort of compare and contrast in this, um, in this, uh, podcast series sort of between this Silmarillion and the sort of the 1937 text or anything like that, because I think that would just take us away from this text. But it, it, it is interesting to think about how, um, you know, how, how his sort of creativity works. So maybe it's a little disingenuous as a comment, but that is, you know, what Tolkien says here about sort of discovering things. I mean, of course he has a plan to some extent, uh, or at least he hasn't, you know, he has the stories already by this point. Um, but, you know, I think there's something to be said for, for that sort of creative process, especially perhaps as he's thinking about that in the 1920s and 19 teens before that, when he's writing the unfinished tales, which I guess is what he's talking about here, but, um, but, um, I think it says something suggestive about his, how his mind is working, I, I guess. Yeah. Did you have any, any, um, thoughts that you wanted to put out there about, about the letter? Yeah, well, there's a few things I wanted to have a look at. Um, I guess, I guess let's start with, Tolkien's reasons for creating myth, or this myth in particular. Um, and of course, this is a passage that's so often quoted in almost every book I've ever read about Tolkien. Um, and here it's on page, uh, uh, Roman numerals, I think. Sorry, let me find this. I think yeah. it's Roman numeral twelve, right? Um, yeah, that, that's that's if you're about to read what I think you're yeah. about to read, that, that's what I'm looking yes. at on Roman the numeral page, twelve. So. Yes, so um, yeah. it's this. It's, it's this. I won't read it all out, but it's it's the quote that begins: "Do not laugh, but once upon a time, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legends, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And this is quoted so so often <laughs> in in, in so often that I almost don't want to talk about it because it's just so well known. But I think it's worth just highlighting what he writes here. He doesn't say he's going to make a mythology for England, which is usually what people say. He says he's going to dedicate it to England and it should therefore possess a certain tone and quality, somewhat cool and clear, redolent of our air, um, and, you know, not classical myth in other areas, and possessing the fair elusive beauty of some um, that some call Celtic should be high, purged of the gross, whatever that means, and fit for a more adult mind, land long and now steeped in poetry. Um, and then he goes on to say uh, how the cycle should be linked to a majestic whole, and then he says absurd. <laughs> so 
So, you know, there's something a little bit self-effacing about this passage, which people don't always pick up on. And I think taking this at face value as a kind of, um, as a kind of creed of his uh, creative output is a little bit, it misses the point, let's say a little, I don't know if, what do you think? Um, because I think by the time he's writing The Lord of the Rings, I don't think he's writing a mythology really to dedicate to England particularly. Um, I think he's doing something a little more expansive than that. And certainly. Yeah, I, I interpreted that. So you're saying that people, people cite that as if he, he was trying to write a, a mythology of England. Yeah, or like for England. Yeah. For yeah. England. Yeah. I, I always just interpreted I say always. I, I read this like <laughs> you know six months ago, maybe when we, I, don't, I don't remember when we started doing this, but mm-hmm. um, but the, when I read it last and when I read it this time too, I interpreted it as um, simply that he was he was writing a myth mm-hmm. and it was just going to be English. It was going to be like in its temperament, like he says, in in, in its mm-hmm. in its sort of like frame of reference, I guess, like broad frame of reference or broad sort of state of mind and sort of. Mm-hmm. You know, place in the place in the sort of literary world was going to be like broadly English. Mm. But um, I don't even know. I, I don't know. Is that, is that totally wrong of me? No, I don't think it's wrong of you. I, I think a lot of people um, interpret the letter like that or interpret that passage in that way and sort of use it as evidence for this idea that he's sort of writing a mythology for England. I just think that by the time he gets to this point in his life where the Lord of the Rings is sort of almost done and he wants to publish the Silmarillion. Remember, this letter was written in, I think, also 1951. So it's about the same time that he's writing um, most of the material that is in the published book, published Silmarillion. Yes, 1951. So, and he's in fact trying to, you know, he's thinking about trying to get it in a publishable form. So I tend to think that by this point, and certainly by the 1960s and the later 1950s, I just think that he's not really writing a mythology necessarily for with such a specific goal in mind. Um, I think it sort of has a life and a character of its own, which may indeed be, as he put it, sort of, you know, something with an elusive Celtic beauty. But But I feel like that's definitely sort of more characteristic of, of, of how he's thinking about his first Silmarillion, which is the, the so-called Lost Tales book. Again, I know I keep saying that I don't want this to be a comparison thing, but then I keep bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's my own fault. Um, but but I, f- I feel like he's sort of, they're describing his earlier project, his earlier creative project, and then sort of, as I said, he's, he's being a bit self-effacing or he's being a little bit self-conscious about it and saying, well, that's kind of absurd, isn't it? Um, but, you know, maybe I'm misinterpreting that. I mean, and then, you know, he goes on to say, uh, such an overweening purpose did not develop all at once. The mere stories were the thing. They arose in my mind as given. This is what we're talking about before. So, again, page Roman numerals 12. As they came separately, so too the links grew, an absorbing though continually interrupted labour. Yet I always had a sense of recording what is already there somewhere, not inventing. So I think he's really talking here about his Lost Tales experience, um, the original Sim William. And then he talks about some of the other stories he 
it made up the Hobbit, Simon Giles, Pam, etc. Um, and then on the next page, he talks about allegory, which you mentioned before. Um, and then he sort of goes on in the letter to, um, well, to basically summarize the entire history of Middle Earth, sort of together with his his actual um, sort of writing process. So, which I actually found very helpful, actually, as a yeah. Well, I think that's why it's sort of included as an introduction, yeah, because it does sort of yeah. it does actually kind of summarize uh, a lot yeah. of the material in in a certain way. And I want to talk about that, but um, just real quick before hmm, we get yeah, there. Yeah, so yeah. just to, just to try to sort of summarize your point mm-hmm. about, about about that bit about the the English myth. Um, hmm. So so basically, are you are you saying that maybe this this is what the project was when he first yeah embarked yeah. upon it? But but as all projects do, when they as they grow larger and larger, they they become more and more about themselves. Yes, and yep. um, I think that's by what... the time that he was yeah. By the yeah. time it had, grew, it had grown to that point, then it, it really can only be self-referencing. It got so yes. so large. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Um, and we see that in The Lord of the Rings, I think, because The Lord of the Rings is just, as you said, sort of self-referencing. I mean, so much of it's, um, you know, as I've spoken about with several guests, so much of its charm, that's not quite the right word, uh, so much of its effect is is, is precisely in, in its relationship to this earlier material. Um you know, in a sort of a closed loop. So, so I think that's by this point, Tolkien's writing has become self-referential enough such that uh, the, the whole mythology for England idea sort of loses. I, th- I think anyway, it loses sort of uh, meaning in 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 not not completely. Um, there, there are certain ways that it's refracted in, in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits and in the Rohirrim, for example. But but I think that. Um, you know, becomes its own thing, as you put it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I mean, that's my position. <laughs> I buy that. I buy that, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think in that passage, he's sort of, as I've mentioned, he's sort of, um, he's explain, He's trying to give an explanation of, of where this sort of arose out of, but then he's sort of saying that, well, you know, m- maybe this was a little bit silly um, and, and sort of this is how it's matured and, and come to pass. I mean, he doesn't say that explicitly, but that, that's... That's my reading of it. Yeah, that, that's fair. But, um, you know, so, certainly one can take a different approach <laughs> or a different opinion. So I guess to, to move on then, I mean, as I mentioned, Tolkien then goes on in the letter to sort of explain the whole the whole mythological cycle. Um, and... You mentioned that you found that useful, and it is useful. It is a, you know, it is it is a useful, um, it is a useful summary just from that point of view. Um, and for those of you who might be listening who haven't read Cerulean, um, I would certainly recommend reading the letter in order to perhaps <laughs> ease yourself into the the book if you haven't already done so. But there's a few, just a couple of areas I want to highlight before we get into the Ina Linda lay, which I promise we will. Um, on page numeral 13, Roman numeral 13, um, there's just a, a quote where he's talking about, um, I guess, some of the thematic concerns of, of the, the whole 
cycle, the mythological cycle, and he says, anyway, all this stuff is mainly concerned with full mortality in the machine, which he uh, capitalizes. <laughs> with fall, inevitably, and that motive occurs in several modes, with mortality especially as it affects art and the creative desire, which seems to have no biological function, to be apart from the satisfactions of plain, ordinary biological life, with which in our world it is indeed usually at strife. That was the first sentence. I just, I'm interested to know what, how you sort of take that, um, that sentence. I'm not quite sure how to, um, what to think about that. Uh, which sentence, the, especially as it affects art and the creative, the sub-creative desire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually took, took a, took a possibly totally off base, but sort of wacky <laughs> reading of it, which is, mm-hmm. which is that, um, kind of similar to what, what we were saying about the Lord of the Rings. I think to some degree, all great mm-hmm. art is, is about art itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all great art is, is sort of, um, meta textual in some way. And, mm-hmm. um, kind of, I, I just, I had this sort of, poetic image of of everything that Tolkien wrote really just being about um the art of writing and and what it means to actually create something um create something you know from from nothing you know whether mm-hmm. that's that's in the form of a creation myth or just you know writing some prose mm-hmm. um and I was, I was kind of thinking thinking along those lines and then and then also the kind of um the idea that the making of something is is necessarily the the sort of destruction of it as well, right? The act of creation is a is an act of destruction, mm-hmm. and um, I was kind of having ideas of, of that kind swirling around as well. That that mm-hmm. um, that there may be some sort of inevitable entropy or destruction that that sneaks into both the world and mm-hmm. the creative process, and it, it's sort of uh, a metaphor for for his own state here where he's he's really mm-hmm. unable to finally sort of compile all together. I don't know if that's just a totally like up my own ass um kind of reading, but that that's just the kind of mm. kind of stuff that I had going on in my head when I was reading that. No, I don't think so. I think there's something to that. I mean, yeah. Obviously he didn't finish this Silmarillion this or any other Silmarillion in, in really um in totality. So <sighs> Yeah, filled with this sense of mortality and yet unsatisfied by it. Mm, I, I mean, yeah, that, there's something there. Um, I think, you know, what he's saying here, um, and, and again, as we'll see going forward, a lot of his own gloss on, um, on his own work, on a lot of his own commentary on his work often takes a sort of very theological flavor, as you might expect. <clears throat> you know, uh, he says, it may become possessive, clinging to the things made of its own sub-creator wishes uh, to be the Lord and God of his private creation. And, yeah, I can see, you know, especially there, sort of talking about perhaps himself, um, yeah. he's, he's sort of, you know, he, he is sort of torn, or there's a tension between sort of his role as a kind of creator um, of of this world and, and maybe his own theological beliefs, I don't know. Um, he will rebel against the laws of the creator, especially against mortality. Both of these will lead to the desire for power, 
for making the will more quickly effective, and so to the machine or magic. So, um, and he intends by this external plans or devices um, that sort of coerce certain effects, um, particularly, I suppose, with regard to um, this idea of mortality and trying to sort of overcome it. Yeah, and that has, I guess, obvious sort of parallels in his own um, his own creation here. But um, no, that seems to be sort of setting up the I don't know the the sort of theological character of the book, at least how he thinks about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and I almost had a, I almost had this image of him as as Melkor actually. You know, the, <laughs> mm. there's already, there's already like a thing going on and he's, he's interjecting his own sort of desire to be individual and, and, and vain into it, um, by, mm. by sort of writing this, by writing this, you know, world into being. Um, <laughs> that's, that's obviously not, there's no basis for that, but it was just a, it's just a sort of funny <laughs> image that, mm. that I had when mm. I read, particularly with that, that paragraph as, I was imagining him as Melkor. <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, there, there is sort of this tension between, um, he seems to feel it himself, this sort of creating this world and therefore being in some sense its master, um, and, and, you know, sort of feeling, having some sense of guilt or something about that. And, and perhaps that's, that explains his sort of self-effacement that I've talked about before. Um, and, and we see that in, in sort of other, Letters of Tolkien as well. And of course, it is a major theme in the work, as we will definitely see. So, what, what do you think about that paragraph? Yeah, well, I mean, again, I, I think it's just an interesting insight, I, I suppose, as you've said, into his mind and perhaps some of the tensions that are perhaps a little bit below the surface there. Um, and of course, he's writing this letter, we must remember, to a publisher. The sort of get the Silmarillion published and perhaps had this publisher said yes you know perhaps he would have actually finished it because he'd have you know he'd have some reason to but um so he's trying to sort of explain himself and and so he's not being too frank I think but perhaps in between in between the the lines as you were if you read between the lines there are hints of sort of difficulty creative uncertainties perhaps as you've sort of hinted at um, yeah. Perhaps. Uh, that's, yeah. Go on. That's interesting to keep in mind that that mm. uh, I forgot that that the publisher didn't end up publishing this. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, mm. I for some reason I had in my head that it never got published, but it was because Token never finished it. Well, you I know, didn't realize that the publisher mm. rejected it. Yeah, that's right. At this point, so had the publisher not rejected it, maybe he would have finished it at this point um, because he would have <laughs> had a deadline or something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Hmm. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm, so th there's oh. some, um, you know, the, <laughs> there's there's interesting possibilities there um, to read into yeah. that letter. <laughs> um, it's more of a pitch than I than I realized. I think I was reading this yes. as almost a letter to a friend who happened to be a publisher. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's more um, of a pitch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's good to keep in mind for the next time I read it. <laughs> yeah. No, and. I think on that note, just on a more general level, you know, it's been placed in the second edition of this book as an introduction, but I guess I'm interested in thinking about how that really works. 
you know, this is the author writing again to a publisher, prospective publisher. Um, it's not actually written as an introduction to the book for general readers. So how does this maybe color our approach to the book or color our interpretation? Because we're not just getting a summary here. I think we're also getting a sort of theologico ideo political <laughs> a reading of the text from Tolkien himself, uh, which of course some people will take as simply authoritative, but is that how we should approach the letter, do you think, um, as a kind of introduction? You know, this is not, for example, like an introduction written in, say, a Penguin Classics edition where you'll get some scholar to write, you know, a sort of lengthy introduction. Now, those are, of course, partial themselves, but you can more easily see that because, of course, the author isn't writing the introduction usually. Usually it's some other scholar or something quite distant from the author in time and space um, who, who is sort of writing their, you know, some background material, but also perhaps giving some interpretive material as well. But it's always obvious that one doesn't have to sort of take at face value what this person is saying. So should we treat this letter in the same way, do you think? Um, I don't think we should because I, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that we have to just, just, um, sort of take take at his word of everything that, that's written here, especially considering the, the context of this um, as, a, as a letter, as a pitch, as you put it. Yeah. I tend to agree. I think I, I, we maybe have talked before about mm. um, my, my position as, a, as an interpreter of, <laughs> of musical compositions puts, mm. puts me in a position where, where I often... Um, I often think that the composer's opinion on how his piece or her piece should go mm. is is just one opinion. It's an it's an interesting opinion, but it's mm. not it's not by any means authoritative. And, yeah. And oftentimes, I found that the composer doesn't understand their piece as well as the the performers do anyway, because there's a kind of myopia that one needs to have when when one is making something mm. um, that maybe makes you lose track of some things that that a, mm. a scholar or someone taking a sort of purely interpretive aspect can can take so it's it's always a trade-off and i always think that it's it's an interesting opinion mm. maybe weighted mm. maybe weighted 1.5 times or something but <laughs> but it's mm. by no means it's by no means authoritative and um you know, I, I take it with, with many cloves of garlic, as it were. Um, it's, <laughs> mm. to me, it's, it's purely interesting and, and just, it's good to know what maybe he had in his head or what he, mm. maybe what he thought he had in his head <laughs> or what he, what he, what he would like people to think that he had mm. in his head. Mm. But, mm. um, that hardly colors my, okay. my interpretation at all. That's I don't know. Good. What do you think? Mm. Well, that's good. I mean, yeah, I agree with that. I, I just think it, it, it's, 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 as I mentioned before, it's so often quoted as a kind of, um, not just that passage that we looked at, um, but, um, you know, so often quoted as a kind of, as a piece of evidence for various positions. And I think that's fine, but I, I think we need to just have some awareness about what, what it's doing. You know, yeah. it, it's not, it's not written as an introduction. It's written as a letter for a very specific person uh, it's not written for general readers although it can function in that way as you said you found these sort of summaries interesting but um yeah that's something to keep in mind and we might come back to that as we go on so we'll see how we go hmm. yeah all right and and i think just one point um to make on that letter actually um 
I mentioned before that so much of this material was actually first conceived back in the you know 19 teens and 1920s and although there is there are certain shifts and changes that do take place over over time obviously in the shape of these stories and in certain features in general a lot of it is there in the 20s so a lot, a lot of that creative cre- creativity that initial creativity is something that he's talking about in retrospect so we're not necessarily getting an insight into Tolkien as he was in the 20s or 30s we're getting an insight into what he's thinking about the text in 1951 which if you've read for example again the nature of middle earth book is, is somewhat different to how he's thinking about these texts in the 1960s um, things get progressively more theological <laughs> basically he's <laughs> he, he he gets more sort of worried about how his vision can be interpreted theologically and how closely it matches sort of various catholic ideas um and you know obviously a lot of religious readers are going to like that i myself don't like that i think that he loses a lot of his creative impetus when he starts doing that very very forcefully in the 1960s um but that's i guess a conversation for another day but i think here in this in the Silmarillion published Silmarillion we're sort of in the middle of that process and we get something that's still still reflects the the sort of the creative impulses that he had in the 19 teens 20s and 30s when he's really creating this stuff for the first time and i think the 1951 simulian is a kind of you know it's it's a nice which as i mentioned which is mostly what this text is it is a nice um you know encapsulation of, of of sort of that creative process up to that point i think much much of what comes after that you know, t- tends to tends towards. <laughs> well, I don't want to say anything too mean, but it tends towards ossification. But also, um, he at once sort of ossifies his create creative impulses into into the stories that have already been um, been written, or otherwise takes them in certain directions which limit. The creativity that he has left but i don't know <laughs> that's a that's a discussion for another day but um but um I'm, i can't even remember what my point was there. <laughs> it's going off on a tangent but um i can't remember either <laughs> yeah. but I, I would tend to agree that that tends to happen with, mm-hmm. with people who are working on something for that long you know it's mm-hmm. um it's a long time yeah and yeah. i think it's, it's easy to sort of get in your own head and get to get to top down maybe mm-hmm. like yeah well that's that before, definitely yeah. starts happening i think anyway yeah. um anyway I, I, I will talk about that with uh with daniel when we have a review of the book the nature of middle earth book i think a literary example of that could be mm. something like finnegan's wake you know oh yeah okay i mean i haven't yeah. read that or tried to read and i'm never going to yeah. <laughs> but um yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah perhaps yeah, it's, it's something where he starts out with some interesting ideas and he plays mm. around with them and it's interesting but then you know he's just it's festering in his mind for mm. yeah, a couple of decades or however long he worked on it by the end it's just it's gibberish because he just Im- tried to impose a structure on it that mm. it couldn't mm. possibly hold yeah but okay. at, at least the lord of the rings can, not the lord of the rings at least all of the middle earth stuff um continues to be readable yeah, I mean, it, it's it's certainly um, you can certainly pass its sentences um, yeah. fairly fairly you know fairly easily in yeah. most cases. Um, should we get to the? Um, yes, we should we should get to the Ina Lindley. Sorry, so so that's a whole lot of background. Um, 
for those. So hopefully listeners have, have maintained interest. But I think it's important to, to mention some of that and discuss that letter. So, yes, Ina Lindley, right, the creation story. Um, so let, let's just get into it, I, I guess. Um, so, sort of, first of all, you know, what did you think? What, what, were your, what were your first thoughts about the story as a whole, about the creation myth? I mean, I, I love it. I, I love the fact that it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a musical creation mm, myth. I thought you might like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and I don't know if that's unique. I'm not, I'm not versed in, mm. in all of the world's mythological traditions, but mm-hmm. I don't know of any other one like that. And I like it. It's, it's, um, mm. it's, it's, it's just, it charms me. So yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it does have a certain charm to it. Yes. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah. So, so the yeah. Sorry. Go on. Yep. No, I was just thinking of of like a, a sort of topic to to get it rolling. But if you have something, mm. if you want to, if you have a direction you want to take it in, you should go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, I was just going to say that you know we, we have the this sort of I guess a three act structure in a sense. There's the music of the Ainur, so they they sort of sing in a, in a sort of heavenly choir, if you like. Then there's a vision that they're given of the world, which seems like a visual sort of given in visual terms. So we have sort of music and then we have something more painterly maybe. And then we have, of course, the account of the creation itself. So we, we see that, the, that there's been a vision, there's been a sort of history that's been somehow woven, but it needs to be actually made. And then that's when the the, 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 the valor or the certain Ainur come into the earth and, and sort of actually do what, you know, the, the sort of, the sort of actual physical making that one might expect of as, as pantheon of, of gods, um, and that you know that they, they sort of raise mountains and, and you know make the season and what whatever, and they they create or they attempt to create anyway this this very symmetrical sort of world it seems. So we have the two great lamps, um, which sort of takes us into the first chapter of the Silmarillion a bit, but, but but eventually we have these two great lamps which give light to the world. Um, so we don't yet have the sun and moon and, and the Valar sort of live in this, the middle continent, what becomes middle earth, you know? Um, but of course, throughout this process, we have this character Melkor who's always disrupting things. So I really, <laughs> there's so many places we could start, but I guess I wanted to start with Melkor and what's going on with Melkor here. So I don't know, in, in my notes, I've got sort of this, question of motives um do you think it's do you think it makes sense to talk about motives here or you know are we on such a sort of abstract mythical plane that perhaps talking about such elemental forces that we can't ascribe motives to a character like Melkor but it seems like the text at least sort of partially does that I don't know what did you think I I think I mean I hope sorry (laughs) that's right my book book dropped um it were um (laughs) I think one must one must try to ascribe motives to mm-hmm. certainly Melkor to I think everyone including um, Iluvatar. I, I think yeah. I mean I'm, I'm even inclined to to read the the Old Testament and and ascribe motives to, to oh, yeah. God. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think it encourages you I mean, to do that at least. Yeah, some level. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, I'm not even sure what the argument for for not having uh for, for not for not thinking of motives is i, I didn't quite understand mm. could, well, you, could you sort of 
walk me through, like maybe yeah. maybe try to steal man that argument. Um, <laughs> sure, yeah. For, for, the sake of, for the sake of this podcast. Sure, yeah. Well, I guess I'm not re- I'm not arguing that we shouldn't um, think about motives. It's just, you know, should I, I guess should we treat these characters as sort of more elemental forces, or should we treat them as personalities in and of themselves? Um, because I feel like sometimes, of course, they take on the sort of attributes of certain elemental forces, um, especially when they come down to the the earth itself to make it. Um, but yeah, I don't, that, that was all I was thinking. It's not a major that, point or very, anything, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the, that's one thing I really that's one thing I really like about the Hellenistic mm. uh, view of of myth, which I think is passed down into into. Um, Mm. to Judaism and it's kind of lost in, in, in Christianity and, and Islam. But, yeah. um, the, the, the part, the part that's, that's interesting is, is that the, the gods and, and the goddesses are, they, they, they occupy like a, a, a sort of a, a chimeral role, right? They, they're mm. both elemental forces and, yeah. um, you know, they, they get involved in these sort of petty human disputes. Um, and it's kind of present in some degree in the human in in the in the in the, in the Hindu myths as well, like yes. that. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, that they they are. I want to ask gods, you about yeah. that. Yeah, but, yeah, but but they do but they do get sort of embroiled in in, in hmm. petty disputes and and stuff like that. And um, I, I think I think that's uh, there's no conflict there in my hmm. mind. So hmm. so I, and that's, yeah. that's one thing I appreciate that I think he he has at least in in the. Um, in his creation story, he has sort of flaunted the the Christian tradition in that in that sense. <laughs> mm, mm. I, I definitely agree. Yeah, um, and certainly, as you note, I think we can take the Vela, especially as characters. Um, but perhaps you mentioned Iluvatar, this sort of um, the All Father, if you like, which he was mm. called in some of the earlier editions. To mention the earlier ones again. Um, <laughs> Which sort of do a, a token pod drinking game where you, uh, yeah, every time I mention the earlier Silmarillion text. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned that, yeah, we can think about Iluvatar too as a character. And, and of course, many readers just take, take Iluvatar to be, to be sort of equivalent to the, um, Abrahamic god, which, you know, perhaps in Tolkien's mind he is, but as a character, what do you, what is he? I, th- I think his motives here are quite different to the Christian. God, if we can ascribe motives to the Christian God, um, for example. But what seems to be motivating the creation of the world here in in this myth? Do we think? Sorry, I don't want this to sound like an interview. Just put questions back yeah. at me if you. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's a question that I would I would mm. have back at you because I I have no no mm. um to that question. I do have maybe if we get to it later mm-hmm. um some some of the motives that he might have for the way that he. Mm-hmm. Um, he treats Melkor and, and generally, you know, has yeah. this sort of the, you know, want, want, wants the world to create it. But as for the creation of the world, no, that's, that's going to have to be all you. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just, for me, I, I feel like his motive is sort of artistic, right? It's aesthetic. He wants to sort of mm. create this world as a kind of a drama or something, um, which is really suggested by the theodicy that's in this in this text where um you know on page 17 that is arabic numerals page 17 you know he says um once melkor has sort of introduced his own discordant theme in the music iluvatar says mighty are the ainur and mightiest among them is melkor 
but that he may know, and all the Ainur that I am a Lubitar, these things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done, and thou, Melkor, shalt see no theme, sorry, see that no theme, dyslexic today, may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. So there's a certain sense there that Iluvatar is, you know, obviously in ultimate control, but that there's perhaps, um, there's a sense also that that it's everything that sort of happens is is part of the plan on some level and it's all sort of redounding to some sort of dramatic aesthetic um outcome (laughs) um i guess what i'm interested here is i feel less in this version for example against the christian story for example i I don't feel like elivatar is motivated by sort of goodness or something like that, he seems to be motivated by a kind of, as I said, sort of aesthetic impulse, which makes sense for Tolkien. Um, I think this is a very sort of Tolkienian story, um, obviously, but but in, in that sense that, as we were talking about in, in terms of the letters, he's sort of, he's sort of on some level obsessed with creativity and the creative impulse, as we'll see in the book, because that's what the whole book is about, really. Um, so that, that's sort of how I take it. He, he sort of, he has this, and then of course that, that's perhaps supported by this idea, as you mentioned, that of course the, the first act of this story is the music, the great music. So yeah, I, I don't know how, how you would think about that. But. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I, would you say it, the, I, I would have another question for you, which mm. is, which is maybe, um, okay. I, I sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's just like a, a thought experiment, I guess, mm, of, of, mm. about, about ethics, but, um, but yeah, th- there is definitely a sense that, that, uh, that the Odyssey is dealt with here in, in a much more honest way than I think it is in, in the Christian myth, where it's, you can almost imagine the Luvatar saying, um, you know, yeah, m- maybe bone cancer in children does suck, but it is all part of this sort of divine vision that I've had. Um, yeah, th- yeah, that's that's a, that's a that's really stretching it. But whereas whereas in, in the in the in the Christian myth, you know, there is some some place where you have to sort of square the the circle of of this being um, mm. ultimately something that's done for 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 good, right? For some sort of ethical mm. good, mm. which which is not even sort of being put into the question, really. I think it's easy to maybe I don't know if if there's anything in the text to support that, but. Um, it doesn't seem like he's really like you're right. He's not really concerned with, um, with. Well, if we take the, the character, character yeah. If we take the character yeah. of the text here and forget about Christian slash sure, other kinds right. of religious, and I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm just saying a lot of people do this. You know, they sort of treat Luvatar as a biblical figure, but it's like, well, let's just take him as a character in this text. I just don't think we have evidence that he's sort of motivated, as you say, by goodness or. You know, it's not like God saw the world was good, right? It's not, yeah. there's not some sense that, there's a sense that it's aesthetically pleasing that the music is somehow beautiful and there's a glory in it. He says, and thou, Melkor, wilt discover all the secret um, thoughts of thy mind and wilt perceive that they are but a part of the whole and tributary 
to its glory, there's a sense that this is something like the Stoic universe. It's a kind of holistic um what's the word I'm looking for? Not not mechanism, but organism. That's the word I'm looking for. Um mm. and that somehow you know, and we'll see this when when the world was first created, there's some sense that it's sort of first created with a kind of symmetry in mind. It's you know, there there are certain aesthetic characteristics not ethical characteristics, which it seems imbued with. Now, you might say, well, Tolkien is equating aesthetic characteristics with ethical characteristics and saying, well, beauty is sort of beautiful. Beautiful things are sort of good by default. But I don't, I don't know if this really that, that idea really works with this theodicy because, as you say, it's not sort of saying that everything that works out is going to be good. It's saying that everything that works out is somehow going to redound to the glory of this creation um, yeah. in a sort of aesthetic sense. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, yeah. a circle that can't be squared or a square that can't be circle. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I'm inclined to agree with you, though, that I, I think that, that you could do that kind of a beauty equals good mm. sort of association, but that's extra textual. And even, you know, what one striking comparison to, to just write in the very first few lines, mm. um, you know, the, I, I don't know if this was intentional, but there's a, there's a parallel to, to, you know, the, the, the phrase and it was good right and mm. but here he says and they sang before him and he was glad that's um there's a sort of resonance there but it's it's mm. one that's more that's more um maybe narcissistic for lack of a better word or it's just more <laughs> it's more um yeah it's, like you said it's this he's creating this this thing that's that's um, sort of it's more yeah self-serving i'm only coming up with negative words but i know what you mean um, i feel like a Ale- yeah. louvatar is like a i don't know like an advanced like um like a really advanced ai or something and he's sort of thinking about you know what's sort of an aesthetically beautiful simulation that i can make and you know, <laughs> i feel like yeah. there's something like that you know um yeah and if i happen to set off you know five thousand years of horror then so be it you know it'll yeah. all be it'll all, it'll all it'll be all sort be of it. dramatically interesting in the end anyway yeah and that's why you know thinking about this i this story, I don't know, thinking about sort of comparative examples. You know, as a myth, it's sort of, it's interesting because it has this sort of monotheistic feature. Um, and, and of course, what most people think about when they think about this is, is this sort of tension between the monotheism and the, the, the valor, who of course, this pantheon of gods. And I, I know some people have sort of, when I say people, I, I don't know, perhaps I've read it on Reddit or something. I can't think exactly, but, you know, I know I've seen comments somewhere that, that sort of suggest that, you know, he's trying to have his cake and eat it, as it were. Um, he's trying to have a sort of monotheism and also sort of just import a kind of polytheism as well. So he sort of mashes the two together. But I think it, it does create an interesting, um, I don't know, in my mind, it creates an interesting dynamic in the story, which, which is fairly unique, I think, to this mythology, which is that, um, you know, you have this sort of creative, the world begins as this creative sort of act, this very aesthetic act, as we've sort of mentioned. Um, and then we have these beings who are sort of, presumably Iluvatar is in some sense omniscient, right? He seems at least to be omniscient, if not quite omnibenevolent in that really very ethical sense. Um, but then, you know, the world is actually sort of created by these much less, well, by, by these not omniscient <laughs> beings. Um, 
obviously opposite of omniscient, um, who sort of have to go into the world and, and actually and actually do the, the creating, you know, itself. And and as we'll see in the Silmarillion, they face all sorts of sort of dilemmas, and you know, some of them ethical, some of them just sort of proceed, uh, um, prudential or procedural, mm. um, and they don't always make the right choices and, and whatever. Um, but their role in the story is. <laughs> Sort of interesting as well, and we'll get to that and sort of why why they become necessary. Um, it seems to be in order to some, perhaps on some level, to to facilitate the drama of of history, right? Um, I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, and it also it also begs the question of who's really who's really the 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 creator here i mean yeah yeah that's um yeah it does seem like the the valar are doing all the hard the heavy lifting Mm. here yeah Um, yeah i mean as elevatar says he says behold your music he doesn't say my music this is your minstrelsy and each of you shall find contained herein amid the design that i set before you all those things which it may seem that he himself devised or added that's right before he yeah Mm. page 17 again um so you know, again, it, it introduces this interminable debate between fate and free will in Middle Earth, which I feel is like a distraction. But um, <laughs> it's it sort of what I like about the story is it doesn't resolve any of those sort of paradoxes of, of theology, right, that people talk about in terms of real world religion. But it sort of expresses them in a, in a, in a sort of pleasing and interesting way um, by having this sort of creator figure but perhaps there are also these other figures who as you say do all of the hard work and there's sort of a distance between the creator and the world um there's a theodicy but it's not quite a theodicy perhaps it's it's not so much related to the ethics of the situation um yeah Hmm. i I don't know (laughs) there's something there where there's something there where i think if you Mm. If you if you make something that's sort of uh, beautiful and detailed enough that it that mm. like it's going to it's going to end up dealing with the same questions and maybe those questions are yeah. on some level not answerable by literature right maybe these are yeah. I'm not saying that I'm hesitant to say that anything is an unanswerable question <laughs> yeah um, but maybe it's just something that can't be resolved aesthetically, which, which you know, whatever, mm. whether it's the it's the Holy Bible or whether it's the Silmarillion, mm. it's they're attempting to solve these problems by the same method, and maybe mm. it simply can't be done in any sort of intuitive aesthetic way. So, um, I could imagine there being, I could imagine a, a lesser writer really trying to set out to solve some of the problems that that, yeah. that theology poses. And yeah. the, sto- the story that the creation story that would come out would be would be crap, you know. <laughs> the reason the reason that this holds up with other um, creation stories of the world is because it is similarly non conclusive and and sort of. Hmm. Um, I keep saying this today, but but bottom hmm. up, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, so there's something there. Yeah, and I think I don't know, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe what you mean by that is it reads as though it is sort of given as an answer, not the answer, by a cultural tradition, right? Which is yeah. really what it is conceived as uh, right. in the secondary world or in the in the story world. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's quite what you, I, I, you mean, but yeah. 
It is. It is. I think that's something that is is maybe a little bit harder to do. I, I could imagine it being harder to do than than it seems, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if this is a perfect an- analogy, but it's almost like if you're if you're teaching a student, mm-hmm. you know, to play to play an instrument or something. So, sometimes you you try to imitate what they're what they're doing, right? That's that's a they're doing badly, and especially <laughs> sometimes really really hard to do because you need to be really in control of what you're doing to recreate a mistake in a precise, <laughs> yeah, in a precise yeah. way. Um, like, yeah. So I think it, it maybe have, maybe is hard, harder than I might be giving him credit for to just mm. make something that reads as if it, it could have been a, a legitimate um, creation myth because to do so in the 20th century, um, it would be maybe too tempting to, to try to answer Mm. too many of the questions that um or just maybe put too much of a a, a bow on it mm. you know mm. and yeah maybe this i don't know i've mentioned plato in in the notes but maybe this has something more in in common with plato's aesthetics than it does with sort of i don't know sort of biblical accounts of um of uh of God's creative process. Sorry for that. That's, that um, <laughs> that break there. I'm just I'm just having a look at my my notes, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I feel almost that in sort of singing the world into being, um, as we've discussed again, that brings us back to this sort of artistic idea. Um, seeing the world into being though generates a kind of to use platonic idea, to, to, to use platonic language, kind of idea of the world, right? There's this sort of abstract idea, this abstract notion in, in music somehow, however we sort of understand that, right? Um, and then, as I mentioned, it's sort of given a painterly aspect in a vision, it's called a vision, and then it's actually, as we've mentioned, it's sort of, they're, they actually go down and, you know, sort of, sift through the dirt as it were you know to, to build up the, the mountains and the towers um but it sort of starts in this platonic way with with this vision i, I don't know if you, you know i don't know if there's much to say about that but um perhaps it relates back to this idea of, of the aesthetic um sort of part of this creation or the aesthetic motive of this impulse of this creation and a sort of beauty as again a kind of idea um or form um yeah. and yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if that, um, that sort of raises anything for you but mm. so so the two things that 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 i'm thinking of is yeah is that um plato is on the mind but actually precisely because he makes um he does make the kind of um mm-hmm. beauty equals good um, or beauty equals virtue. Maybe. Yeah, that's what I was um, sort of thinking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Connection, and and even to the point where where um, uh, you know, didn't he have problems with certain certain harmonies or certain chords um being being played because Possibly, because they were yeah. dissonant? I think he he actually did associate dissonant chords with mm-hmm. evil. Which, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. Is, is you know t- is you know made literal here? Or yeah. Not literal, yes. But, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but but there's also a resonance to to the to um. To Genesis, I think, in mm, that mm. Um, it's it's always interested me that 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 um, the the author of Genesis, whoever that may be, I, I read somewhere that it could be someone that, that they called Jay, who was like the, the the wife of King Solomon or something. Um, mm. But 
um, it's always interesting that the, whoever the author of Genesis is has has two stabs at the at the yes. creation myth, yeah, right? There's, right yeah. there, there is the first, and it's, it kind of follows a similar thing, which is the, the first one, which is very abstract. Um, hmm. It's it's a it's a kind of universal creation myth, and then the, in the second one, hmm. <laughs> excuse me, um, God God is anthropomorphized, and and again, he's he's literally walking through um, the the world that he's created, and he fashions Adam out of clay. Um, yes. It's a much more it's a much more sort of in in the dirt, literally, and 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 yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, so it's it's interesting that there too, um, there are two stabs at creation, and mm. I wonder if there's something something in creation myths where you have to deal with this this problem where you know you do have to create the world and, and you have to abstractly create the world, but then you actually have to make the things that people see around in the world. So yes. yeah, absolutely. I wonder if it's more more common than not to um to have two cracks at it. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's. Um particularly interesting. I'd love to get a Plato scholar. I'm not a Plato scholar on to actually talk about. By no means am I. <laughs> to talk about some of those. Um, it's been a while since I've, I, I've not read the Timaeus, which is his sort of um, creation myth. Um, actually, that would be interesting as a comparison. Um, perhaps we can do that at some stage, yeah. but, um, uh, but, but, you know, I know that, um, I know that certain comparisons have been made in the scholarship between sort of neoplatonic ideas and the, um, I'm delay here. So, um, that might be something worth, you know, I'm sure there's readers out there who are more knowledgeable on Plato who are sort of thinking of a whole lot of parallels and perhaps interesting differences as well. Um, mm. but, um, yeah, there's something that struck me there. And of course, beauty as a form is sort of the highest form, right? For Plato, I, I think, um, mm. I know I could be wrong about that. Maybe it's the good or maybe they're the same thing. I'm not sure that um, it's been a while since I've read Plato, but, um, yeah, it's way out of my. That's way out above my pay grade. Yeah. So I'm mean, just reading, <laughs> reading the the Stanford Encyclopedia on Plato's aesthetics. It does say that. Um, so beauty's unmatched pedagogical effects when trans transfers it to, um, yeah, shows why Plato talks about its goodness and good consequences. Sometimes even its identity with the good in in the Laws Republic Symposium. But the relationship between the beautiful and the good in the symposium is controversial. Mm, okay, yeah. Mm. So, so there's some there's some relationship yeah. there, and, and it'd be interesting to know what that controversy sort of. Um, the desirable effects also explain why Plato speaks grudgingly of beauty and art and poetry. Um, another question matters more than either poetry or beauty does. What leads the mind towards knowledge of the forms? Anyway, yeah, that, that's all. Um, Plato's weird relationship to poetry, but um, <laughs> but yeah, so so okay, th there is some there is some perhaps contro controversy over that, and I feel like as well we've been talking about in this discussion, I feel like there is a tension in this story uh, in this particular myth mythological or mythologized vision. There is a kind of tension perhaps between the beauty and the good. I don't know. Would you, do you think that, that that's a conclusion we can come to or do you think that's, yeah, I don't know. I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know. If, uh, I didn't pick up on any tension be between the beauty and the, between beauty and good. My, my, my reading hmm. is purely that, that I assumed that Token himself was making the beauty equals good kind of, hmm. um, like the, the sort of, um, extra textual sort of assumption. 
Okay. Um, that, mm. that it also made, or maybe controversially made, I don't know. Um, mm. and, and that I was just reading it kind of eliminating that and just sort of um. this purely aesthetic creation myth. But I didn't, maybe because I was reading it too single-mindedly, I didn't pick up on any, no, um, no. I didn't pick up on any dissonance with, with, between those ideas, you know? Mm. That's fair enough. I think, um, I think, I think it's, if, if you told me that token was, was, um, was equating beauty and good, I, I it seemed like I, I could believe that. That's what I assumed, mm, you know? Yeah. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess I just, I'm struck by the, the focus on the beauty as opposed to the good in the, the story. Um, at least in this creation myth. I mean, we can get into the good. Yeah. Later. I, I don't know, but, but yeah, it's, it's not necessarily contradictory or anything. Um, I mean, well, wanna... now that you pointed out that one paragraph of, of um, mm. the one that you read earlier of, um, yeah, and uh, Malcor sh- shall see that that no theme may be played. That, that yeah, not its its yeah. uttermost source. Me now that you pointed that out, and and particularly the context that you read it in, I, I'm more well, I'm more receptive uh, to that. To I, don't, I certainly don't think you're wrong in in reading just just sort of taking it as given that the beauty sort of is equivalent to the good um, in this context. But I guess, yeah. Or rather, I was just eliminating the good, you know. Oh, I see. I see. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You were sort of having. Right, to, so it was like there's yeah. like two two layers where where yeah. I assume that to- that's what Token was thinking, but yeah. I just choose to to delete that part because I like it more as a yeah. as an aesthetic reading. And well, I think to be fair, as far yeah. as I know, in the yeah. text, the text all we have to go off of is the yeah is the aesthetic reading, right? Well, that, that's I guess that's what interests me about this is that it it sort of. It's sort of, and I keep using this word, but it really aestheticizes the creation to a degree that's sort of, for me anyway, I don't think present in, say, a Genesis or some other creation myths. Uh, I mean, you could certainly say, well, God thinks the world is good in Genesis, therefore he thinks it's beautiful. Uh, you know, that this is sort of aesthetic reading. But again, that, that comes back to whether or not there's a sort of distinction. I don't know. Re- anyone who's, who's listeners... Um, what do you think? Write to us and um, and tell us what you think on on Twitter um, or our reading Tolkien Facebook group, which hopefully one day will be a group. But <laughs> but you can you can join us there. But um, yeah, I think it's interesting that I guess either reason is is or either reading rather is um, perhaps plausible. Yeah, I think again that's that's what makes it makes mm. it good. Um, a more closed off reading would would have made it made it lesser. Mm, mm. A more closed off uh, writing of it would yeah, have made it yeah, a lesser yeah. lesser tale. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I find interesting is for such a often moralistic writer, especially in the Lord of the Rings, where obviously sort of moral sides are drawn very starkly, um, it's interesting here that although yes, we have Melkor and we have you know Iluvatar and the other Valar, sort of there's that distinction between them. Um, it's nonetheless all somehow redounding to the beauty of the whole, of the whole. Um, that, that's sort of given as a, as, as we mentioned as a theodicy that somehow undermines that. If we want to make an ethical distinction, it kind of undermines it because if it's, if it redounds to the beauty of the, the whole, then can we really make an ethical distinction there? It's all yeah. just, all just part of the drama. I don't know. <laughs> well, there's also something where, where, uh, I've, we've definitely talked about the, the connection to, to Milton before, but, mm. but I always find it fascinating that, that, um, 
that Milton almost seems to, I mean, I have no doubt that he, he believes, hmm. um, in, in the Christian myth, but sure. Yeah. He seems to, he seems to subvert it more than you might think if you, if you hadn't actually read him, mm-hmm. um, mm. in his treatment of, of, of Lucifer. I think it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's a, it's more of a, he's more of a heroic, um, well, he, he's more of a figure that is, that is at once to be pitied and at once to sort of, he has, he draws him in sort of heroic, um, yeah, yeah. In, in heroic gestures. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's something to that with, with Melkor too. He's not presented as, as purely wretched or, um, mm. just this sort of un, unimpeachable evil or even just something pathetic. Um, there's something, there's something to yeah. be, um, there's something with Melkor where we actually, at least I do immediately kind of associate, um, with, with something, something fundamental to our humanity in Melkor. And I think Milton does the same yeah. thing with Lucifer where yeah. there's something in, in the way that, um, it's, um, you know, every man for himself and God against all, right. It's, <laughs> there, there's, there's yeah. I think there's a, there's a fundamental part of being a human that, that is a, a, um, a rebellion against the creation for, for having been yeah. brought into it maybe. And yeah. the only people yeah. that, but you see, um, you know, it's, it's an, it's an odd treatment to, to give, a, a sort of heroic characterization to someone who is who's flaunting, mm. you know, everything. But Milton does that with Lucifer, and I think Tolkien does that with Melkor, and and I think that there's something there. I think if if it were if it were as ideological as sometimes he purports to be, and certainly other people make him mm. out to be, then I don't think you would get that kind of a uh, a sort of subtle treatment. I don't, mm. I don't know if you Perhaps, have anything yeah. to, to riff on with that. Yeah, I mean, he certainly is a sort of Miltonic figure, at least here. Um, he becomes sort of pathetic later on, but, um, at least here he does, he does have a sort of, um, not quite heroic, but, um, relatable motives, maybe, um, which brings us back to yeah. that question, which I guess, um, you know, is interesting. And of course, what, what I sort of highlighted here was, um, um, you know that, that Melkor is um, is is ashamed after he sort of you know sort of does his own has his sort of discord <laughs> discordant um, phase, and then he's filled with shame, and then out of the shame comes a secret anger. Um, yeah. And so this is what seems to generate his sort of later um, or his fall, if you like. Um, it's not simply that he sort of creates a discord and wants to go off on his own, but it's that somehow uh, he's ashamed of it and, and therefore um, somehow out of the shame comes anger. I don't know. Does that, does that strike you yeah. as psychologically plausible? It, it, it did. It struck, it, it struck me as, mm. as not just plausible, but very sort of, I hate the word relatable, but very, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it made it, it mm. yeah, it was um, I, something I certainly didn't pick up on when I was a kid, but um, yeah, yeah. You know, it it brought to mind the the wonderful phrase by by Christopher Hitchens that that, um, <laughs> that 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 we are we are created evil and and commanded to be well. Yeah, or, I mean that's or, or created yeah. sick and commanded to be well and sick and commanded to be um, well. And, yeah, there, yeah. and there's something there's something there with with um you know Iluvatar does create everything and and all the Ainur and he does say like um. You know, everything that you do is still, is still, you know, beholden uh, hmm. to me. Yeah. And yet, Melkor is being shamed for this 
for this thing, which you know he has he has been created as such. Yeah, yeah. So you know, again, we have these problems of free will that um, no creation method can really um, uh, solve. But, yeah, yeah. But there's something there where where um, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some sense in which Iluvatar is is creating Malkor um, sick and and commanding him to be well, or at the very least, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? He's uh, not threatening him, but he's he's he's, <laughs> he's basically he's basically out riffing him in a in a in a <laughs> yeah yeah in, yeah. A, in a jam in a jam sesh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, it comes back to this notion, <laughs> this theodicy of, of sort of everything that you do sort of just redounds to the glory of, of the creation, which suggests anyway, which suggests that the free will is kind of a sham, right, anyway, because mm. uh, if, if free will were actually, if, if it was something sort of <laughs> ontologically, if you like, you know, meaningful then then surely it would actually have an effect on on the world um in, in some sort of tangible way but but apparently you know at least according to this myth um and i think i think by the way that the story the later stories kind of just undermined this whole idea anyway but at least according to this myth um it doesn't sort of matter what choices anyone makes. It, it all just sort of redounds to some sort of aesthetic, um, you know, vision or, or whole, which which is just made more glorious by, you know, by by anything that sort of happens, you know. So, and, and I think in, in the first chapter of the Silmarillion proper, I think it is, we're given the, um, I think it is, we're given the, just to, just, Skip ahead briefly, but given the um, the uh, uh, maybe it's in the island lay. We're given the example of a snowflake, which sort of um, and I'll just read page thirty-seven, thirty-six, thirty-seven. In the overthrow of the mighty pillars, so Melkor comes into the world and overthrows the great lamps, which I mentioned before, are sort of the first sources of light. Hmm. Um, Illumin and Ormal. In the overthrow of the mighty pillars, lands were broken and seas rose um, in tumult. And when the lamps were spilled, destroying flame was poured out over the earth and the shape of Arda um, and the symmetry of its waters and its lands were marred at the time. So we, again, we've got this idea of sort of symmetry, which is related to sort of aesthetic values, not so much moral values. So the first designs of the Valor were never after restored. Um, and then we sort of also get as part of this kind of ideological myth of, of sort of volcanism and other sort of features of the um, of the earth. Um, I'm just trying to find talks about the snowflakes, but anyway, we can come back to that. But um, but we see that you know there's this idea of original symmetry and then that's sort of broken you know just like in physics right and then and then um wait just like is there is there really such a thing as that in physics oh you know like the the symmetries of, of, of various forces of nature and stuff i don't know <laughs> oh i'm sure that's a thing uh, yeah no i don't uh, know again not a, not an expert on that but um yeah <laughs> far from it 
I'm still, uh, I'm still, still, I'm still uh, recovering from my from my D in in uh, yeah in high school physics. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Melkor sort of does these things and has these apparently has this free will, but but then it's sort of um at least again at least in that the Ainulindale myth sort of seems to me that anyway that that, that sort of rendered meaningless because um we're left with this sort of with this vision of splendor and beauty for example the snowflake which is sort of created by the ices of melkor i was trying to find the quote but i can't see it right there right now but um and so you know this new beautiful thing comes out of this um clash of of uh forces that sort of melkor initiates by you know by his discord um, and so the snowflake is an example of, of this new thing, which is not imagined, you know, by the Valar. Um, but it's this beautiful thing. So, um, that only comes about because of this clash, uh, which suggests to me that Melkor's, um, betrayal, if you like, sort of part of the plan all along. And that that's actually the drama that's what's, now again, I, I keep, I, I keep trying to argue for this kind of, um, this aesthetic reading of the text, but yeah, um, sort of divorced from the good, right? But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Otherwise, I think I think I mean uh, an ethical, I, I yeah. agree with that. I, yeah. I just I feel like sorry, yeah. no, sorry. I feel like an ethical reading just introduces too many contradictions between in in the sort of fate and free will debate. If 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 you take it, which is interesting. I, I think at the very least, I think it's interesting that Tolkien seems to be emphasizing that and playing around with it. Um, but um yeah yeah i i haven't um thought it through as much as you have i just um my my preference for the aesthetic reading is is purely is purely aesthetic <laughs> yeah but no i think it, it has some i think it has some uh textual reason yeah you know, or there's some textual reason there for it yeah yeah I and mean, what you're saying is convincing so mm. well to me at least yeah well any any listeners i'd love to know um for those listening, what do you think? This is kind of an interesting question, I think. Um, is, is the good equivalent to the beautiful or should we take them as a sort of separate, uh, separate platonic forms that don't always, um, can't always be equated? <laughs> so, um, in real, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if you have, if you have any other, I have to get going relatively soon. Here, yeah. But, yeah. That's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, would it would it be interesting to to have a, a quick riff on whether that's true in real life? I think sure. I, I know your answer. But sure. Okay, I, sure. Unless you have any other things to talk about the the uh, the annual in the way. Is that how you say it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. No. No. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So what what do, what do you think? Um. I'd say no. <laughs> yeah. What would you say? Um. <laughs> I'd say I'd say it's it's pretty pretty self evidently no, but but I, <laughs> yeah. I think um I think it, that's maybe it's maybe cheating because it's informed by our mm. general lack of, of belief and yeah yeah and uh, oh my God, I can I can easily imagine someone who's more theologically oriented that um I mean, they, yeah. that they would answer the question. One could easily say I suppose that in our sort of fallen world, the beauty is not always equated with the good because the world is to use Tolkien's terminology, marred. Um, but one could say yeah. that, well, the forms, the, the pure forms of the beauty and the good are, are in fact, 
one and the same thing. Um, one could, I suppose, yeah. argue that. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I, I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a it's a we'll have to get a philosopher on. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think I think for now um, that that's a good good discussion. I think you know for any readers who've who've not read the Ina, <laughs> readers for any listeners who've not read the Ina Lind delay, um, I would recommend it. Um, and of course, hopefully you enjoyed that discussion. I think we covered quite a bit. There's of course. A great deal more that one could talk about with regards to the Ina Lindeley, but um, you know, I think I think that discussion about you know the the extent of or, or the sort of motives of, of God in, in creating the world are of course um, of interest to to people to believers in the real sense, and this um, th- this sort of myth gives another perhaps another answer to that, or at least it suggests something about the about an answer. But um, yeah, is there anything you wanted to to say to close things out, or not really? I think that was that was my piece said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> looking forward, looking forward to, the, to the next bit. Yeah, yeah, cool. So um, you know, hopefully, um, if, if readers were interested in that discussion, um, feel free to look us up at on Twitter, which is probably at the moment the main way of contacting us, and that is. At sorry, I've got to find it again. What is it again? It's uh, <laughs> it's at Pod. Do you know your own handle? Sorry, <laughs> it's, no, no, sorry. <laughs> it's at Pod Reading, um, and you'll find us there. And I also have a Substack, which is sort of the Substack for reading Tolkien. So it's just it's called I think it's just called Reading Tolkien. Yeah, it's just called Reading Tolkien Substack. And we post well. I'm going to post these. Um, tutorials i was just teaching tutorials so i have that in my mind these podcasts on there um and all the other podcasts are now on there as well as some other stuff i've just been writing but uh which is sometimes do with talking sometimes not but that's another place to respond i think for now they're the two main places there is a facebook group too if you want to join that so anyone who's interested in that um in that debate please um contact us there so i think we'll um we can we can we can finish that off there so thanks again and i think that was interesting yeah hopefully i didn't talk too much (laughs) no no that was good all right cool all right thanks everyone and we'll be back next time with um the next few chapters and i'll post on the twitter exactly what yeah we haven't decided yet exactly where we'll get up to but we'll um we'll post that so thanks everyone and do get in touch if you want to contribute to that discussion so Thank you, and we'll see you later.